invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John 17. John 17, that's page 903 in the, the, the blue pew Bible. If you're using one of those, it's 903. John 17, where we will uh, this morning conclude uh, a three-part series that we've been working through the last, well, three weeks now. Uh, we're working through the high priestly prayer of Jesus recorded here in this gospel. And I have entitled the sermon this morning, Not for These Only. Our key words for worship and training are one, love and glory. Two weeks ago, we considered the first part of this prayer in John 17, verses 1 to 5, where Jesus specifically, uh, before his arrest, his crucifixion, he prays for himself. Um, And there he asked God to restore the glory that he had with him before the dawn of creation. And he knew that this glory could only be obtained through the gruesome death on the cross. It was uh, really the, the central focus and mission of his life to come and live a sinless life and to die on the cross. The cross stood center to his life. And in this prayer, in verses 1 to 5, this first part, we saw that he, had, he confessed that he had completed the work God had given him to do. He had come, and with the de- his death just around the corner, he had come to give eternal life to his own, which he did by the means of his life, death, and resurrection on their behalf. And we saw that this eternal life that he was to give his people is the sum in substance uh, as the knowledge of God. What is eternal life? He says it is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he had sent. Well, last week in 6 through 19, verses 6 through 19, we saw that Jesus begins to turn his attention to pray for his disciples. And specifically, we see he's praying for those with him there in the upper room. And, and we saw uh, in those verses the necessity and the sufficiency of God's word to bring about that knowledge of God which Jesus had come to impart. We saw also that uh, Jesus' disciples are, in fact, his disciples. They belong to him. They belong to God. And like him, they're not of the world, and yet he has left them in the world. They were to continue, even after his death and resurrection, to reach the world with the gospel message. And then in this, uh, this morning, we will consider the conclusion of this prayer where Jesus Uh, expands out the vision. He says, I'm not praying simply for those with me in this room, but I'm praying for all who will come to believe through their word. He's praying for the church as a whole. And so um, we will uh, read verses 20 to 26, and then there are four things I want us to consider from these verses. Jesus says, I I do not ask for these only, but, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, 
because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So as I mentioned, there are four things that we will consider from these verses here. Uh, We will see in Jesus' prayer his concern for the faith of the church. We will see his concern for the unity of the church. We'll see his concern for the witness of the church. And we will see his concern for the glory of the church. So the church's faith, unity, witness, and glory are the four uh, major themes we will consider from this text this morning. First, the church's faith. See this in verse 20. He says, I ask not for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one. He's not just praying for the disciples, the eleven with him there in the room, but he's, he's praying for all who would come to believe in him through their word. This tells us that Jesus has an expectation and a desire that the ministry of the apostles would be fruitful. It would be effective. And that others would come to believe. And notice how it, he says it is that anyone is to come to believe. He says it's through their word. And that, this helps clarify even further what we saw in verse 18 last week. This mission that he leaves them. He sends them out into the world. Though they're not of the world, in order that many may come to believe in him through their word. We come to faith in Jesus Christ through this apostolic witness. The tradition of the apostles was front and center in the life of the early church. One very brief example of that, we see that in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. He says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And he goes on and describes life, but there, specifically in verse 42, it's important to highlight what was the first thing on the list. The apostles' teaching is what the early church was devoting itself to. Now, what is the apostles' teaching? Ultimately, it's summed up in the 27 books of the New Testament, which in large measure is an inspired commentary on the 39 of the Old Testament. And so, are, are we to know God? Are we to know and believe in Jesus Christ? It is then to this book that we must look. We've seen in this prayer from Jesus that the knowledge of God comes through the Word. This is a, an ongoing theme here. Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God, has left for us the saving knowledge of himself, of his person and his work in the teaching of the apostles, which is recorded for us in Holy Scripture. And so this is the first thing that we see here in verse 20, that the centrality of faith in Jesus' prayer. We are to believe. That is who he is 
praying for, those who will believe. And it is necessary to have God's word in order to bring that about. Well, secondly, uh, Jesus prays for the unity of the church. You see this uh, kind of all throughout, but especially in 21 through 23, he prays for the unity. And unity is, is a kind of a, a tricky word, and we'll come back to this, but unity and uniformity are not the same thing, and that's an important distinction to make, and hopefully by the end we will have made it. Um, and so as we consider unity, though, there are really two things that I want to address. What is it that he's asking for here? Well, when we think about unity, we'll talk about its nature and its function. And so what is it and how does it work? First, what is this unity? Jesus is not simply talking about agreement. Um, he's not just asking here that all in his church would, would get along and uh, have the exact same opinion about everything in the world. The unity that he's talking about here, that he seeks for his church, is predicated upon the unity and the diversity of the Godhead. He says in 21 that he's asking that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And in 22 through 23, he says he gives the church his glory that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me that they may become perfectly one. So we're not talking about just being kind or or, or having nice things to say about one another. We're talking about something much deeper, richer, fuller, and blessed than we likely have the mental, spiritual, and emotional equipment to grasp. And yet here we go. When we think about this description that Jesus gives here in these verses about the unity that he wants for the church, the unity that, he, that exists in the Godhead, um, there's, there's a kind of a big fancy word that theologians use to describe this situation. And uh, it's, the word is perichoresis. And if big words with Greek origins interest you, then you're welcome for that. If, if they don't, then don't worry that's pretty much all the technical jargon that, that we will consider this morning. But this word, perichoresis, right, is used to describe a mutual indwelling, right? Mutual indwelling. It's a way of describing uh, the oneness and the threeness of God and how those relate together. Now, we can't launch into a full discussion of the intricacies of the Trinity here, um, but I think that is an important concept to discuss. And so, what do we think about the Trinity in light of this mutual indwelling, right? So you have one God with, made up of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, the Spirit is the Spirit, and yet each member of the Trinity engages in this mutual indwelling with the others. The Father, separate and distinct from the Son and the Spirit, nevertheless indwells each of them. Likewise, the Son and the Spirit, separate and distinct from one another and from the Father, indwell one another as well. This is what R.C. Sproul had to say about it. We can distinguish the divine persons, but we cannot pull them apart. They exist in one another. The Father dwelling completely in the Son 
and the Holy Spirit, and the Son dwelling completely in the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwelling completely in the Father and the Son. And so there is this oneness, this unity where they are together mutually indwelling one another, though they are distinct in their personality. This is what Jesus is referencing here when he says he longs for the disciples to be one, when he longs for all of his disciples to be unified, even as he and the Father are one. He and the Father and the Father in him. And he wants us to be brought into this union. It's not just the model for our unity, but he wants us brought into this where we experience this indwelling God in us and us in him. So what does this look like, this perichoretic relationship? How does it work? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, has a, a really small book uh, on, the, on Christian community called Life Together. And uh, it's, it's really helpful. It's a great read. I can't recommend it highly enough. And, and it's, been, it's, it's, good when you think, it's good to help think about the unity, the community of the Christian church. And he begins the book talking about what Christian unity is and, and what it's not. Um, he says that Christian unity is a grace experienced in and through Jesus Christ. The unity that we have with one another exists only as we relate to one another through and in Christ. We don't have fellowship directly with one another. We have it in Christ. Christ dwelling in us by His Spirit unites us together. Not just as a local church, but we are united with all who have believed through the word of the apostles. One commentator describes it this way. He says, similar to the relationship, the relationships within the Godhead, the believers, still distinct, are to be in one in purpose, in love, in action, undertaken with and for one another, in joint submission to the revelation received. The Christian church, then, we see is to be in, in submission to God's word, and in light of that, to be of one mind, one doctrine, one heart, one practice, closely united and joined Together, And this is the unity for which Jesus prays. Well, third, the witness of the church is his concern. We see this also in verses 21 to 23. This unity that Jesus prays for is not uh, merely an end in itself. He prays that the church may be one as a witness to the world. There are two things about this witness that I'd like to note here. First, in verse 21, we see that Jesus prays that God would unify his church in order that the world may believe that God sent Jesus into the world. The unity of the church is a means of witness to a watching world. The world looks on and sees uh, the church united in heart, mind, doctrine, practice, and purpose And those who see are pointed to a Savior who rules as head of the church. It's vital that we grasp this unity, or this uh, this purpose for this unity. He prays for our unity with this particular goal in mind here. 
When those in the church live in union and communion with one another, thus reflecting the union and communion of the Godhead, faith is provoked in an onlooking world. Or at the least, they are left further with no excuse. It is the gospel message alone that is sufficient and necessary for a person to be saved. But what harm do we do when we live in disharmony with one another, when we live at enmity with one another? We are representatives of Christ. The church represents Christ to the world. It's important that we take this calling seriously. So that's one element of the witness is that it, it is meant for the, the, the church to, to be unifying that the world might believe God sent Christ into the world. It might be a means of rescuing people out of darkness. In 23, we see further that Jesus says that he's bestowed his own glory on the church so that his people might be one, so that the world may know that God sent Jesus into the world and that God loved them as he loved Christ. Upon first reading in the reading this verse in 23 it might may, it may seem ambiguous. Who is it? Who is the them in verse 23? That the world may know you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Is he talking about his love for the world or his love for the disciples? We can begin answering that question with this question. Does God love the world? Yes, of course. We're told earlier in John, in chapter 3, that God so loved the world, he loved the world in such a way that he gave his only son that people might be saved from it. It's his love for the world that motivates him to send Jesus to die for it. But here Jesus is talking about something else. Does God love the world in the same way that he loves his son? Say we need to deny that. The plural them here is, is enough to, to really clarify who he's talking about, right? He says, loved them. That's referencing the they early in the verse, the disciples. The unity of the church here speaks of God's love for his church. He's not talking about the world. God does love the world, but this is a different love. It's to his own people that the fullest expression of love has come. The love he has for his son. But even this love has an evangelistic element. The world looks on the church, sees the church's unity, and comes to believe certain things about God. Namely, his gracious character in sending his son to die for sinners. A united church speaks of a Savior who came in blood for them, set his love on them, and welcomes others to trust in his name. A divided church speaks of perhaps a God who cares not for his people. The world is set against God. The world doesn't know God, but his disciples do. This is what Jesus says in verse 25. 
And so it's through the unity of the church as it clings to the testimony of Jesus Christ that the world is obliged to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And what about this love with which God has loved us? Christ says it is the same love with which he loves his son. A love which he had before the foundation of the world. Believer, do you know that? God has loved you from the first. And he loves you with the same love he has for Jesus Christ. The depths of this reality can hardly be understood by our finite minds. The love of God, the Father, for God the Son is the same love that he pours out upon us, that he pours out upon his people. Perhaps this prayer of Jesus's was on John's mind later when he wrote his first epistle. He writes in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are loved of God. Well, fourth, Jesus prays concerning the glory of the church. We, we said earlier that, that unity is um, unity is, is, is often kind of the, the, the big player in, the, in, this, in this passage, right? If you ask most people, oh, what's John 17 about? It's, oh, Jesus is praying for the unity of this church, and, and he is. But, but glory, in many ways, is kind of the, the unsung hero of this prayer, of this chapter, from beginning to end. If you look in... Verse 1, that's how the prayer begins. Father, the hours come, glorify your Son. And then in verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. The very first and last petitions of this prayer are about glory, specifically Jesus' glory. And there's a movement in the whole entire prayer. It's, Father, glorify your Son, moves to in the end, Father, bring them in with me that they may see and experience and delight in my glory. By the end, he's praying for his people and asking that they be brought in. He says in verse 22 that he has given glory to the church. The glory that God gave him, he says, I have given to them that they may be one. And then in verse 24, he asks for his people to be brought to the place where he is. And where is he? Well, in verse 11, we know this last week, he says he's going to the Father. He's returning to his throne to rule as the rightful king of the universe. And this is where Jesus seeks for his people, his bride, to be, to be by his side in order that they may take in the wonder of his majesty. So Jesus prays that the church 
be glorified perhaps mostly in the sense of experiencing his own glory and delighting in Christ's glory. And as we do, we become like him. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold Christ in his. Well, let's take a few minutes and and try to bring a few of these themes and threads from this prayer together as a whole and consider a few points of application. Here are some themes that we've considered over the last three weeks that we've seen again this morning, uh, things Jesus is particularly interested in for his, for his church. Um, one, we, we've seen that Jesus wants his people to know God and so receive and experience eternal life. This is the point and purpose of his coming that he would give eternal life to all whom God had given him. Jesus came to rescue a specific people. Jesus doesn't come to die indiscriminately for all of mankind, but he comes to rescue a people that had been given to him by God. He came to rescue them from the wrath their sins deserve. And we see, second, that The only way that we come to know God in this saving way and thereby inherit eternal life is through the means of His Word. Jesus gave His disciples God's Word. He entrusted them through the power and guidance of the Spirit to proclaim that Word to the nations and so make disciples of all peoples. And this point, again, can't be stressed highly enough. The promulgation of the Christian church is fundamentally, principally, supremely, and exclusively through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught by the apostles. Kept for us here in the Word. There is no way around it. There is salvation found in no one else, in no other name, but Jesus Christ alone. Third thing, we've seen that this proclamation of the word is, is, is central, central to the calling of the Christian church. And it's critical that we not let unity be disrupted, that we not let disunity and quarreling, quarreling inhibit us from this task. We must strive for unity so that we live lives worthy of the calling to which we've been called. The Lord has thus far not seen fit to take us out of the world, but to leave us in it. Though we must remember we're not of it. We're here to bring the gospel of God to every corner of the earth. There are still those left who have not yet believed. Maybe there's someone here today who has not yet believed, but is to be one of those who will believe through the Word. If you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, I commend Him to you. He is your only hope. It's important to know, when we think about this unity, I mentioned this earlier, and so I want to come back to it now. Unity is not uniformity. J.C. Ryle speaks well in this matter. This is kind of a a lengthy quote, but I I think it's really helpful to understand the difference. 
He says, the unity which our Lord prays for is not unity of forms, discipline, government, and the like, but unity of heart and will and doctrine and practice. Those who make uniformity the chief subject of this part of Christ's prayer entirely miss the mark. There may be uniformity without unity, as in in many visible churches on earth now. There may be unity without uniformity, as between godly Episcopalians and godly Presbyterians. Uniformity, no doubt, may be a great help to many, but it is not unity itself. The unity which our Lord prays for here is that true, substantial, spiritual, internal heart unity, which undoubtedly exists among all members of Christ of every church and denomination. It is a unity which results from one Holy Spirit having made the members of Christ what they are. It is unity which makes them feel more of one mind with one another than with mere professors of their own party. The divisions of real true believers are the greatest possible injury to the cause of the gospel. If all believers at this moment were of one mind and would work together, they might soon turn the world upside down. No wonder the Lord prayed for this unity. Unity is a reality in which we are brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ in the ministry of His Spirit to live upon His wisdom, righteousness, and power for the good of others and the glory of God. It's not a a top-down, imposed uniformity where, where everyone just does exactly the same thing. But this unity is observable. The church, a local church, and the church universal is to adhere to one gospel delivered to the saints joyfully, lovingly, and sacrificially serving all who are in need as we are able, both in and outside the body of Christ. So this is real observable unity, but it it may not mean uniformity. So that's three things. Two more. A fourth is that we've seen the centrality of the glory of God in the life of Jesus. The glory of God is the constant refrain of this entire prayer. He begins and ends the prayer with glory. He lavished love and glory upon us and has seated us in the heavenly places. When you, when you pray, believer, is the glory of God central in your prayers. Let us learn from our blessed Savior here and make it so. Well, lastly, we've seen that God loves us. If you're a believer, you're struggling to believe, to, to know, to experience and feel that God loves you would, you, would you listen to your Savior here in this prayer? Listen as he prays for you now. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus lives forever to make intercession for his people. Have you ever wondered what it is that he's praying for you? He's left us the script. We're given in John 17 a copy of Jesus' prayer for his people. Right now, these are the things that Jesus is praying for us. In this very moment, Jesus is praying 
interceding for us as we come before God in this sermon to, to learn and grow from this word. Jesus is bringing us, our great high priest is bringing us to God. And so if you are trusting in Christ and yet struggle to, to know and to feel God's love for you, Jesus is praying that you would come to know that. That you would know that God does. That He loves you with the love with which He loves His Son. This is how He ends the prayer, right? The last request is for glory, but the last word is love. May the love with which you have loved me be in them. Likewise, if you're here, if you're not a believer, if you're not trusting in Christ, look at the love that God has poured out on His people. It's God's love that's motivated Him to send Christ into the world so that anyone who would believe would never perish but would have everlasting life. And that's the offer made to you this morning. Will you look in faith to the Savior? Cast yourself upon the love of God. Receive Him as your own. Come in and join us in this fellowship with God. Don't stay out in the cold any longer. Robert Murray McShane had this to say about the intercession of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And here we have pretty good indication of what he's praying for us.